Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Baseball Hall of Famer Raleigh Fingers. All right, let's do this. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. Today on the program, welcome a three-time world champion, He's a seven-time All-Star, and he was the Cy Young Award winner and league MVP in 1981. Ladies and gentlemen, Hall of Famer, Raleigh Fingers. Raleigh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, my pleasure, Brett. It's, uh, it's nice to be uh, on your show. All right. Uh, I'm going to talk about this later with you, but I, I just want to reference it now. In 1976, Charlie Finley trades you to the Boston Red Sox, but Bowie Coon steps in. Nix is the deal. Do you ever think about that and how that would have changed <laughs> things in your life and your career? Uh, yeah, it definitely could have. That uh, that whole situation was a, a total mess uh, because we, uh, well, there was really three of us involved in all that, myself and Joe Rudy. Uh, Charlie Finley traded uh, both of us uh, to the Red Sox for a million dollars each and Vita Blue to the Yankees for a million and a half. And uh, it just so happened that the Red Sox were in town that day uh, in Oakland. And so Joe Rudy and I just got to the ballpark and I said, hey, you've just been traded to the Red Sox. And I just picked up everything in my locker and went across the hall to the Red Sox locker room. And then uh, we were in uniform for three days, but then Bowie Coon nixed the deal and said that we had to go back. And uh, I wish I could have, if I would have been able to have gotten into, I warmed up once, and if, had, if I had have gotten into the ball game, I think that they couldn't have done anything because I would have already pitched. But I didn't pitch, and so uh, Bowie Coon nixed it. We went back to the A's. And then Charlie Finley was so upset that he that Boone or that uh, uh, Bowie Coon did this that uh, Joe, myself, and Vida, none of us were in uniform for two weeks. Uh, Charlie felt as though he was right, and so we uh, we came to the ballpark and worked out. But then we were in our street clothes the rest of the time, and uh, so we we had basically played uh, with twenty two players for two weeks and we were in the middle of a pennant race and uh, it, it made it tough on everybody. And it got to the point where we uh, um, had a meeting team meeting in the clubhouse. And uh, uh, we decided that we, we were supposed to play the Minnesota twins. Uh, I think it was on a Sunday. I'm not, it was a day game, I think. And we were supposed to uh, 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 have a day game and Vida and myself and Joe were at the ballpark, and we had a team meeting, and we decided as a team we were not going to play that day. We were going to nope, – everybody was in their street clothes 15, 20 minutes before the game. We weren't going to play. So Chuck Tanner was on the phone with Charlie in his office back and forth, back and forth, and saying, these guys can't do that. And uh, he says, well, uh, Chuck Tanner told him, look, the guys are in their, <laughs> they're in their street clothes. They're going to go home. You're going to lose the gate. And so uh, uh, Chuck Tanner came out of the clubhouse about 10 minutes before the game, and he read the lineup. And uh, as soon as he got to uh, the third slot, Joe Rudy's name was called, and uh, that's when we uh, we went off. We got we went crazy. We uh, we were finally back in uniform again. But that's how that whole situation ended. It was a mess. But I would have loved to have stayed with the Red Sox. I mean, they had a great team. Uh, you know, there was a lot of guys over there. I had problems getting out too, so I didn't have to face them. Petra Sally was one of them, but, uh, uh, we ended up going back to the A's. And then, uh, then after that, we became, we all became free agents and we went our separate ways, but it was a, it was a crazy two weeks for sure. Oh, that's interesting. Cause I, I didn't even know that the depths of the story, I had no idea you put, you put on a, you put on a Red Sox uni and are actually warming up. I mean, oh, I, mean yeah. so I was right. I was in I was in uniform for three days, and I warmed up one time and didn't get into a game. So, yeah, and, and that would have changed things. I mean, you throw a pitch for the Sox, it's like now what are you going to do, Bowie? <laughs> All right, <laughs> we'll, we'll come over the top because sure. I, I had I had Vite on and I had Reggie on, and, and they talked about that whole that time, and, and especially you know being in Oakland A, 
and it's really interesting. We'll get that out a little bit later, but I want to know about a young Raleigh Fingers. Uh, you were born in Steubenville, Ohio. Dad was a minor league player, I, I think, in the Cardinals organization. But just tell me about yeah. your childhood, what it was like growing up. Uh, were you always a pitcher or or, or was uh, well, or something else you did? No, well, when I was a kid, well, I lived in a small town in just north of Steubenville called Toronto. It was more or less uh, coal miners and steel workers. And it uh, uh, wasn't a big population. Uh, I never played any organized baseball uh, until I was 11 years old. Uh, we never had enough kids in town to make up two teams to play. So uh, there was only six or seven uh, kids my age that we got around to playing anything. It was wiffle ball. That's when I became, I started falling in love with baseball. It was with wiffle ball. I could, I could throw a wiffle ball, make it do all these curves and everything, and I fell in love with that. And so, but I, I never played any organized baseball. Uh, my dad played with the Cardinals for four years in the minor leagues before uh, World War II. Uh, so I had, I had some pretty good coaching when I was a kid, uh, as far as, you know, mechanics of throwing a ball, but, uh, he, uh, he came home from work one day when I was about 10 years old and said, uh, we got to get out of here. So we moved we packed up the house. My dad sold the house uh, that we had for, uh, for $1,500 and, uh, bought a car and we, we drove to California, slept on the side of the road, uh, on the way out, we didn't have money for our motels or hotels or anything like that. And uh, we got to California and kind of settled in Southern California and uh, Cucamonga, California. And uh, he couldn't find a job, and he ended up going back into steel mills. So uh, I grew up in Cucamonga, California from, uh, oh, I was age 10, 10, 11, somewhere in there. And, but I had never played any baseball, uh, any organized baseball up until that time. And, um, but I did play, like I said, the wolf ball, so I had an idea how to throw a baseball. You go to Upland High School, and uh, this is this right. is pre this is pre draft. So we're talking. Uh, it's interesting. So you play your high school ball, and then uh, Dodgers wanted to sign you, and you end yeah. up turning them down. You end up signing with the A's. I believe it was the Kansas City A's at the time. I may be wrong, but right. but uh, was, tell me how a, tell me how that went down. Well, I went to, after I graduated from high school, um, that summer I played with the Dodgers organization. Uh, it was called the Dodger Rookies. It was a, like a barnstorming team. They, the Dodgers uh, got all the, the top prospects in the area and put them on a team. We kind of barnstormed around playing American Legion teams and whatnot. And uh, so uh, I played out with them for about two or three months. And then our, our American Legion team, uh, uh, in Upland went, uh, got into the, the, uh, tournament and we went all the way to the finals in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1964 from, uh, you know, we're a small town in Upland, California. Here we are at the world series, American Legion world series in Little Rock. And we ended up winning the world series. And, um, that's where all the scouts saw me was at that world series. I pitched and I played left field. I led the I led the nation that year in, in hitting. I hit 450, and when I wasn't playing in the in left field in the outfield, I was pitching. So I I ended up pitching the final game of the World Series and won. I beat Charlotte. I think the score was three to one, something like that. And uh, uh, we ended up winning the World Series. And I was voted the most valuable player in American Legion World Series. And then after that, scouts started calling. Uh, I had a scout from Minnesota uh, look at me. The Dodgers wanted to sign me. Uh, in fact, the Dodgers offered me a contract. Uh, they were going to give me $20,000 for a signing bonus. And my dad said no. Uh, he didn't particularly care for the, for the Dodgers for some reason. So he said no. And uh, so uh, uh, a guy from Art Lilly was a scout for the Kansas City uh, athletics and knocked on our door and uh, uh, just before Christmas and um, I said we'd like to sign your son uh, to a, a baseball contract we, you know, what are you offering that's what it got to and uh, they uh, they started out at ten thousand dollars and my dad said no uh, we want to we want 17 and then it got negotiated down my dad and uh, the uh, scout down to a, my dad said okay we'll we'll take 13. So the scout got Art Lilly got on the phone with whoever he was calling Kansas City, 
And uh, they said, okay. So I signed for $13,000. That was my signing bonus. Uh, I gave my dad $3,000 in cash. Uh, I bought my mom a sewing machine because she loved sewing. And uh, I bought a 50, uh, I bought a 56 Chevy. And the rest was probably gone in about a year. <laughs> Just had fun. <laughs> so then I went to minor leagues and started in, in minor leagues in Leesburg, Florida. Uh, worst ballpark I'd ever seen and uh, played there for a year. And then uh, I spent four years in the minor leagues, uh, a year in California League and a year in, or two years in Birmingham in the Southern League. And that's where, uh, with, in California League, uh, Modesto, uh, our team there, we had a great team. We won the league that year. We had Joe Rudy, uh, Dave Duncan, Tony LaRusso was my second baseman. Uh, Reggie Jackson was uh, one of my outfielders. So I mean, we had a we had a great team that year, and then uh, uh, I went to Double A after that for two years, and then got to the big leagues. Yeah, the, you mentioned Birmingham. Uh, that's Southern League. I played in Jacksonville. You know, this is years later, but but I know all about going down to Birmingham. I think when I played there, yeah, they were the uh, they were the Chicago White Sox. But okay, so you, so you go from high school, eighteen year old kid now. You go into professional baseball. You mentioned you went to the, the California League, and, and now you're in Birmingham. Something happened to you one of those years in Birmingham. You got hit in the face with a with a comebacker, I believe. And uh, oh, that, yeah, that kind of uh, that kind of shook it up. <laughs> well, by, that was uh, opening night. In fact, that was the opening day pitcher in Birmingham, and uh, this was uh, in the '67. And uh, uh, Paul Bear Bryant was our general, uh, junior was our general manager. So Paul Bear Bryant was at the game that night, and we had—I mean, we had a packed house, and I was pitching good. It was like the third, I think it was the fourth or fifth inning, somewhere in there. When uh, I think we were leading one to nothing, and I threw a breaking ball to this little left-hander, and it was a ball that I, I normally would think that he would just pull. It was a slow breaking ball inside. And he went down and got his, hit a sinking line drive up the middle. And uh, right at my face, I threw my arms up in front of my, my face. And uh, the ball went right between my arms and hit me right in the right side of my cheek. Uh, and uh, shattered my cheekbone, uh, broke my jaw, lost a few teeth. Um, and uh, I couldn't see out of my right eye for a couple of days. Uh, it was so bad. I mean, I was in the hospital for like, jeez, uh, I think nine days I was in the hospital. And um, um, broke my jaw, so I had my teeth wired together. My teeth were wired together for for a couple of months. I went from 203 pounds down to 168 pounds uh, before uh, until I got my the wires off my mouth. And uh, and then I I came back and, and pitched pitched after that. And I I came back okay. It was a little little scary going back out there the first time after you get hit. I mean. After you get something done that happens to you like that, you make sure you get your glove up in front of your face. And I tell every young every young kid that I talk to about pitching, I said, always get that glove up in front of you. Don't worry about the rest of your body. Get that glove in front of your face if something comes up the middle. Because uh, if it hits anywhere else, you're going to heal. <laughs> the face is a different thing. So, uh, But, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough two months for me. and uh, But I came back okay. In fact, I pitched against uh, – uh, I think my first game back was against the same team. It was Evansville, uh, and I, I faced the same kid uh, that uh, uh, that hit me. His name was Kovner. I think it was uh, Fred Kovner or Steve Kovner. I think it was. And uh, but uh, I thought about hitting him, but now nah, I said, Nah, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a that's a big time revenge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really. <laughs> But, All uh, right, so you, but uh, so I, I ended up winning the ball game. <laughs> oh well, that's that's better than losing. I, you know, I witnessed two of those comebackers through the middle. I had one time it was Norm Charlton got hit. They both got hit in the same spot. Norm Charlton, he got hit in the forehead, and then I was also there. I, I'll never forget it. It was in uh, Arlington playing the Rangers, and a kid by the name of Brad Holman is on the mound. Uh, I forgot. I forgot the name of the guy. Mario, not Duncan. Anyway, hit a bullet up the middle, hit him right in the forehead. I went to the mound, 
Because when something happens like that, it's pretty traumatic, especially even for the fielders around us. We see you get hit, you know, that close proximity. And I run out to the mound, and, and there was a single hole. looked like a bullet hole in his forehead and just wow. blood r- running out. And, and his eyes were shut. And the first thing that goes through my mind is he's dead. And, and yeah. thank goodness um, he came <laughs> to. And, uh, but, man, that, that, that was scary for me, and I wasn't even involved in it. But uh, you got through yeah, that. You got through that. Yeah, you make I got, your day. I got through that. You know, it was, it was uh, you know, it's, it, balls come back at you so fast, and you never know when they're going to come back. And uh, uh, it only takes a half a second for a ball to get there and a half a second to come back. So you got one second to, to decide what. I mean, when it hit me, it it knocked me back. I did not. It didn't knock me out, though. It was, was funny. But when I was laying on the ground, uh, I bit down, and none of my teeth matched up because uh, I broke my jaw bad. And so none of my teeth matched up. So I knew something was wrong real bad when, that, when, when I felt that. But it didn't knock me out. I was, uh, I was surprised it didn't, uh, that didn't happen, though. But it's scary. Yeah, you got to make sure you get your glove up there. So you make your debut in the big leagues in 68. And this one, it gets interesting uh, for me. It's you're starting pitcher your whole life. And we're getting a kind of a, a pivotal place in in baseball history i mean you're kind of the original closer i mean 71's your last year as a starting pitcher and your life kind of changed you and like i said you're probably the original closer uh basically kind of changed the dynamic of the bullpen and how the bullpen was used up until that point. I know you were used a little mm-hmm. bit differently than the modern day closers, but tell me about that transition. And, and, uh, well, uh yeah, I to, in 70, I did come up as a, as a starting pitcher. Uh, I got, I had a few starts. I had like 30, 30 some starts, I think in the big leagues, uh, had a couple of, a couple of shutouts, four or five complete games, but in 1971, I, I was kind of the fourth starter, and um, I had a couple of good games at the beginning of the season. Dick Williams was our manager, and then I started getting rocked. I get knocked out in the second inning, and I get knocked out in the third inning, and I get knocked out in the second inning. You know, it was like waiting around four days, waiting to get knocked out in the third or fourth inning again. And uh, Dick Williams had seen enough of it, and this was about halfway. I think it was probably right around the first of June, somewhere in there. And uh, he uh, called me in his office and says, look, you're out of the rotation. You're going to be uh, down in the bullpen. And back then, that's where you didn't want to be. You didn't want to be in the bullpen back then. Uh, it, was a, it was a graveyard for old starting pitchers and pitchers, <laughs> uh, you know, because most pitchers back then, if you're in the starting rotation, you wanted complete games. That's what you got paid on. it. Our, our Oakland A staff back then, we were completing uh, 45, 50, 55 ball games a year. So, uh, you know, you didn't want to be in the bullpen, especially a long man, because uh, you only time you really got in was when you were getting beat real bad and they needed someone to finish the game. But uh, we were playing in New York one day, and uh, we were getting beat like 11 to 11 to 1 or 11 to 3 or something like that. And all of a sudden, it's the eighth inning, and we're ahead. We came back, and we scored some runs, and it's now 13 to 11. And I'm the only guy left in the bullpen. He's used everybody but me. So uh, he he brings me. It's either me or the pitching coach. That's his two options. So he brings me in, and uh, I pitched great. I struck out two or three guys. I got a save. Uh, went. Uh, we left the uh, New York and went to Boston. And the next day, uh, we, I came in again in the seventh inning. Pitched two and two thirds innings in Boston. Got out of a jam. Got another save. And then uh, uh, Dick called me. Uh, Dick Williams called me into his office. And said, uh, you know, from now on, I want you, uh, I want you to be ready from the uh, sixth inning on because I'm going to go to you. And uh, I said, okay. He said, he said, all right with you. I said, yep, that's fine with me. I mean, I was happy. I thought I was getting ready to go to the minor leagues when he when he called me in, but uh, he uh, he kept me in the in the bullpen, and I ended up saving like 17 ball games from uh, like mid June on uh, that year in '71. And uh, I found a home out there. So no, I, was, I was happy about that because uh, I, knew, I knew when I went to the ballpark, I might get a chance in pitching in a ball game that day. And, uh, you know, you just wait for the phone to ring. But I couldn't stand. I just didn't have the makeup to sit around and wait for four days, especially in the big leagues when you're getting hit hard, uh, to wait around for four days and get, and get knocked out again. I like the idea of 
you know, kind of, I enjoyed coming in the jams and trying to figure out ways to get out of it. And, uh, and so um, Dick just stayed with me and I was a bullpen uh, uh, closer from, from 1971 mid season on for, uh, for the rest of my career. Yeah, and, and you say back then it was a place to go die. It was a graveyard, and you're right. I mean, the mentality is completely different. Obviously, the game we watch today is completely de- different. The game is set up around the bullpen. Everybody has their individual roles, and you know, you mentioned you oh, yeah. love coming in. You you love coming into a situation and and in a tough situation and having to battle your way out of it. Uh, it's not set up that way in 2021, but. No, it's, uh, you know, back back when I, you know, back then, you know, you had Sparky Lyle and and Tug McGraw, Goose Gossage, uh, uh, and Kent Colby was around then, Quisenberry. Uh, you know, guys, teams started realizing that they needed someone in that bullpen to get out of jams late in the ball game. So uh, uh, they started grooming guys for that and trying to figure out who would be a good guy to, to have down in the bullpen. And that's when it really all started. Uh, but it's different now than it was then. Back then, I mean, I'd come in in the fourth or in the fifth, sixth inning of some games if I hadn't pitched in a couple of days and go the rest of the way. And nowadays, and we only carried nine pitchers, maybe 10 back then. Nowadays, they're carrying 13, uh, 13, 14 pitchers on a staff. And you, know, you got seven or eight guys down in that bullpen. And uh, each guy knows when he's going to pitch. This, these two guys, right-hander, left-hander, got the seventh inning. These right-handers, left-handers, got the eighth inning. And your closers got the ninth. And then you got three or four really long, long uh, guys down there who pitch if something happens early in a ball game. So there's a lot of arms down in that bullpen now. And uh, sometimes I don't think they got a, enough work to stay sharp. But uh, you know, back then I was the long man. The setup guy and the closer all in one. That's the way it was back then with everybody that uh, pitched, uh, pitched out of the bullpen. Completely different. Uh, fast forward to the, the next year, 72, start your run with that, that infamous run of, of uh, three World Series championships in a row, 72 to 74. Uh, I mentioned earlier, we, we had Reggie Jackson on the podcast. We had Vita Blue, a couple of your teammates that that you enjoyed that three-peat with. I got their version. Mm-hmm. I want about. I want to hear about your version of that, those early, early 70s uh, <laughs> Oakland A's and, and what it was like. It seemed like, you know, obviously Finley's heading the deal. He's the owner. He's running the show. It seemed like a little bit of a circus. I want to hear your version of it. Oh, it was, it was a circus. Nobody was making any money. That's for sure. I mean, I've, I played there. Uh, on 72, I was making $29,000 and, uh, we won the world series. We beat the Reds in seven games. Uh, I was making $29,000 and you know, that year, Charlie, uh, that winter, Charlie sends me a contract. He sends me a $1,000 raise. I said, you gotta be kidding me. I just won the world. We just won the world series. I saved two games. I win one game and he sends me a $1,000 raise and I'd had it. I, I called Charlie up, and I, I mean, I didn't even let him get a word in edgewise. I told him that I, I don't want to talk to you ever again, and I slammed the phone down on him, and I got an agent. I got uh, Jerry Capstein as my agent. I says, Jerry, you deal with this guy because I can't do it. I cannot do it. And so I got in. There were several guys on our team after the 72 season that got the same agent. The Sal Bando uh, got uh, Jerry Capstein, uh, Gene Tennis. Uh, Ken Holtzman and Campaneris. Uh, there were about, Jerry Capstein had about five or six of our guys, and we all went to free agency, or went, not free agency, but went to arbitration that year. And we all won. Everybody won on the arbitration case because we were the lowest paid team back then. So then after the 72 World Series, uh, 73, we win the World Series again with the Mets, and Charlie got upset with the players. Uh, with the, uh, the Mike Andrews situation, I don't know if you remember what happened with Mike Andrews in uh, in, in 1973 during the World Series when he made a couple of errors, and Charlie had him tried to have him kicked off the team, and we weren't going to stand for it, and uh, we boycotted. We were we weren't going to play Game Three of the World Series unless Mike Andrews was reinstated because Charlie did a bogus uh, physical exam. 
and said he had a bad arm when he really didn't, and we knew better. So uh, then Bowie Coon stepped in and reinstated Mike Andrews, but Charlie really got upset with us uh, then. And that year we beat the Mets the next spring training. He gives us our World Series rings. There's no diamonds in the World Series rings. First time <laughs> in history, there was never a diamond in a World Series ring. I mean, everybody was upset. I mean, you have no idea how, how pissed off the ball players were. In fact, Kenny Holtzman, he was my roommate, and he hated it. He hated Charlie as much as I did. And uh, we opened up in 1974. Uh, after we got our rings in spring training in 73, we opened up with the Angels in, in Oakland, and Charlie never came down to the field. He never came down to the field because he knew everybody didn't like him. So uh, opening day, we're, me and Kenny were out in right field shagging balls during bat practice, and I look over into the Oakland dugout uh, at, the, at the Coliseum, and Charlie's in the dugout, and he's doing a, he's doing a TV interview. I said, Holtzy, look over there, there's Charlie. I said, put a couple balls in your pocket. So we had a, we saved a couple balls, got a couple balls, and on the count of three, we wound up and fired them at him from right field and uh, into the dugout. And then as soon as we threw him, we laid down and started doing setups. By the time the balls got there, he had no idea where the balls came from. Those balls rattled around in that dugout. <laughs> he had no idea that we threw balls at him. That's how bad it was with Charlie. <laughs> that's amazing i mean it, you guys are in the middle of an epic run you know you're about to win your third world series you got you've already you've already had two Bowie coon stories and and just the, <laughs> the players just pissed off but you guys want you know and I, and I look at that team i look at that 72 73 74 a's team and I don't think it gets its due. You know, they're always talking about, you know, when you think of dynasty, they talk about the big red machine or the Yankees of the 50s or, or the Yankees of the mid to late uh, 90s. You know, you hear, but, mm -hmm. but what do you think about that A's team? Is Does it get enough credit or, or don't you think that team I should be that right there? You know, I don't think we really ever really got – well, we were playing in a small market, you know, a city to Oakland. You know, if it, we had that team in New York or Chicago or L.A., uh, you know, it might have been different. But we were in a small market. And, uh, I mean, we had good players. We all came up through the minor leagues. This is before free agency. We all came up through the minor leagues together, all played together for four or five, you know, years before we get to big leagues. And we all hit the big leagues right around the same time in 1970, 71. And then in 72, it just, everything clicked. I mean, we knew uh, what to expect of each other in the field. We had good players, Bando and Rudy, uh, Reggie, Campaneris was a great shortstop. Dick Green, probably one of the best second basemen defensively I ever had by him. He could make plays. And uh, Gene Tennis, Ray Fossey was our, our catcher with Duncan, Dave Duncan. But what we won on was pitching. We had a great pitching staff. We had Vita Blue, uh, Kenny Holtzman, and Catfish Hunter. These guys were winning uh, 60 ball games every year between them or more. And, uh, and they were completing 45, 50 ball games a year. So, uh, we had a great pitching staff. Uh, yeah, we were solid in the bullpen. Uh, Daryl Knowles and myself, Paul Limblad, Bob Locker. We had pretty good, uh, we had pretty good, uh, relief pitching. And, uh, we, we didn't go out and kill anybody. We didn't go out and win, you know, 10 to 2 all the time. We were winning those 3 to 2 games and 4 to 1 games and, two-to-one games, uh, that's that's how we won. We never really put long streaks together. You know, we'd win four in a row, then maybe lose a couple, and then win three in a row and lose one. That's just the way we were. And uh, But we did have good pitching, and that's what we won on for three years is we won on pitching. If you go back and look at that pitching staff, uh, 72, three, and four, you're going to see some numbers there. I mean, we had like a team – Team ERA in the 2.4 or 2.5, 2.6, somewhere in there uh, for a team ERA, which is really good. And, uh, and we, you know, we had guys that could hit home runs. We had Reggie and Bando and Tennis, uh, Rudy. We had, those guys were averaging 20, 30 home runs a, game, a year. And, uh, but we, uh, we, we survived on the defense and pitching. That was more or less what we did. 74, you're the, uh, your World Series MVP, and this your third third. You're going to collect your third ring in a row. Uh, any one of those stand out more than the other? Or were they all just as sweet? 
Oh, they're all just as sweet. I think the first one was the hardest because uh, we were supposed to lose. We had just lost Reggie in the playoffs. He had uh, tore his, Achil- uh, tore his uh, hamstring. And so uh, we were without Reggie in 1972, and we're, we're playing the Big Red Machine. I mean, uh, you know, they got they had four, three or four Hall of Famers on that. With, uh, Rose and our bench, uh, Morgan, uh, Tony Perez, Concepcion. They had some great players. And they could score some runs. And uh, we kind of held it with our pitching staff. We held them to, uh, uh, geez, really a low low amount. I think they only scored like uh, one game. They scored seven runs off us. But all the other ones, there was two two runs or less, I think it was. So, uh, but uh, we, we held them off. But uh, the last one was just as sweet as when you win the first one, the second one came seemed kind of, you know, it came a little easier, it seemed like. And then you win again. Well, well, you know, this is going to go on forever, <laughs> you know, because we had yeah. the same guys coming back every year. And uh, and we got to the playoffs in 75, but the Red Sox beat us in the playoffs. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was fun for three years. It was, uh, it was a good time. All right. We, we just uh, recently, uh, uh, me and you had a – we did a little charity event, and you're still rocking the, the mustache. Let's talk about where that mustache, where it started. I know there were bonuses involved. I know uh, it was something started in, in Oakland. And uh, even you were getting bonuses for, for growing the best mustache. Reggie came with a beard. And uh, tell me about that, that whole thing and how Charlie Finley put bonuses on, on uh, oh, facial hair. Well, that's a, that all started at spring training in 1972. Uh, uh, we got to spring training and uh, Reggie showed up with a mustache and a beard and he wouldn't shave it off. And, uh, all the guys got on him, you know, shave it off. You know, it doesn't look good. It's not right. I mean, at that time there was no facial hair in the big leagues. There was nobody had facial hair in the big leagues. And so, uh, Reggie wouldn't shave it off. So, uh, catfish, uh, myself, Daryl Knowles, there were about like, four of us pitchers. Just, we decided down on the bullpen one day, let's grow mustaches. And if we grow mustaches, Dick Williams will say, okay, uh, you know, shave it off, guys. And then Reggie would have to shave his off. So we grew the must. We started growing the mustaches. And uh, we were here about, you know, eight eight to ten days in the spring training and nothing's happening. We're still growing them and nothing's happening. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, uh, we got a memo from Charlie Finley. He got wind of what was going on and he sent a memo to the spring training on the bulletin board. And said, anybody that has a mustache on opening day uh, and you make the ball club, you get 300 bucks. And that's the only reason why I grew this thing, was you get 300 bucks out of Charlie Finley. <laughs> and so, uh, opening day, everybody had mustaches. Guys who even, couldn't even grow mustaches got, got a check. Uh, Charlie came down to the clubhouse with uh, 30 checks, 25 players, four coaches, and a manager. Everybody got a $300 check for having mustaches. Uh, and uh, then we started winning, and we just, we were playing great ball, and we started growing long hair. Uh, and you know we live we're we're playing in Oakland. That's not too far from Berkeley. I mean Berkeley, the kids from Berkeley came out. They loved us, as you know we were the hippie type. We were the hippie type team. We were the crazies from Oakland, and we had long hair and we had colorful uniforms and white shoes and mustaches, and uh, we would go on the road. And we would pack houses. Everybody wanted to come out and see the crazies from Oakland. And uh, we were winning. And, uh, you know, we were fighting on the field and fighting in the clubhouse. We, uh, we had some short guys with short fuses on that team. So uh, they loved us. And I think, after, I think 15, 15 games into the season, we're like 11 and 4 or something like that. And so we all decided to keep the mustaches. And we kept them all season long. The press ate it up. And then we win the World Series in 72. And uh, I just wanted to be different. I said, ah, oh, what the hell? I'm just going to grow a, a handlebar and see what a handlebar looks like. So I grow the handlebar and everybody said, you know, I said, I was thinking about, in fact, I thought about cutting the handlebar and just keeping the mustache. The guy said, no, keep it. It looks good. So I kept it. We win the World Series. So now I got to keep it. And then we go in the 73 season. Uh, everybody had mustaches again. Uh, win the World Series. I got two years with a handlebar. Then I go in the 74. We win again. I got three World Series championships with a handlebar mustache. I can't shave this thing off now. I'm stuck with it. 
And uh, I've had it ever since uh, spring training of 1972. I've had it, uh, never shaved it off. Uh, came close one day uh, in Baltimore. Uh, I came in a first game of a doubleheader, threw one pitch to Frank Robinson, hit a home run off me, got the loss. Came in the second game of the doubleheader, threw one pitch to Brooks Robinson, hit the foul pole, home run, got a loss. Got two losses on two pitches. <laughs> and I had the razor right there. And I decided not to do it. But that's as close as I come to shaving it off. <laughs> that would be amazing. That That is one thing. It's probably the most, well, definitely in baseball, most famous mustache ever. I, I'm telling you, if if Raleigh Figures shaved his mustache, and, and, you know, when we go around the country, we play in, in different events, uh, charity events. I think if, could you imagine you showing up to an event not having it? <laughs> People no, be looking at you I don't going. Think anybody would recognize. Who the hell is that guy? What's he doing here? <laughs> I know. Because <laughs> you've been, because you've had it for so long. You know, it's out. This Charlie no, Finley guy. This Finley guy. I'm fascinated with him. I mean, from the story from oh, Vita telling me oh, the story to you to Reggie, it's like yeah, no, he was the uh, white shoes guy. Yeah, nobody. Lied. I mean, we we won three straight world championships in a row: seventy-two, three, and four. And our team salary, uh, the during the for the '75 season, I think was one. I think it was 1.4 million for the whole team after three straight World Championships. That's what it was like before free agency. And we were we were, our team was at the bottom of the totem pole when it came to uh, team salaries. We were horrible because of Charlie Finley. He was the owner and the general manager, so you had to deal with him when it came contract time. And he, you know, he had his thumb on you. He could do whatever he wanted to. You were um, more or less, he could trade you, send you down, do whatever he wanted to. And so he kept salaries down. And, um, but we, we would pack, pack houses on the road, but we, we very seldom, uh, even can, I think we, there was two or three years we didn't even draw a million people in Oakland and we were winning championships. There was, there, we could do, could count the fans some nights out at the ballpark. Four or five hundred. It was crazy, <laughs> but he was a beauty. Yeah, he didn't want him as your owner. All right, so we move. We go from Oakland, and uh, you're going to start a new chapter in San Diego. How was that for you, though? You signed. You signed with Oakland as a kid, or, or I'm sorry, it was the Kansas City A's then. But you signed right. with them in '64. Six, you you play through the 76 season. So pretty much your whole professional career, you've known one way. All of a sudden, you're going to move down the, down the coast to San Diego and, and play for the Padres starting in 77. How was that for you? Was it weird or, or was it time for you to move on? Uh, yeah, I, probably the saddest day for me in baseball was uh, the uh, last game that we played uh, in 76 with the Oakland A's because we all knew everybody was becoming – there was like – eight or ten guys that were going to be free agents. So we knew that we weren't going to be playing together anymore because Charlie, he could have signed us, but he didn't want to spend the money. And so we all knew that we were going to be going into free agency and going to other teams. Yeah, it was, that was a tough day, the final game in 1976. And uh, myself and uh, Gene Tennis uh, went to uh, San Diego. Uh, I think Reggie went. Uh, Reggie was already went to Baltimore, I think. Holtzman went to the Yankees. Uh, Campaneros went to Texas, I think. I mean, guys were all over the place. But, uh, yeah, that was a, that was a, a sad day. But uh, we, didn't, we weren't making any money, so we tested that market. I mean, I was making, I think, 60. The most I mo- made in Oakland in the nine years I was there was like sixty-five dollars or $64,000. That was it. And so um, the Padres – uh, contacted my agent and said, we'd like to talk to uh, Raleigh about signing with the Padres. And I, was, I just made $64,000. So I go to San Diego, uh, meet with uh, Ray Kroc in his office uh, and Buzzy Bavese. Uh He was the general manager and uh, my agent, Capstein, and myself. And uh, so we're talking and, you know, Buzzy's saying, you know, we'd like to have you on the ball club. We think we could really use you. And I said, okay, well, what kind of money are we talking about here? And um, uh, Buzzy looks over at me and he says, well, we'll give you uh, $250,000 a year for, for five years and a half a million dollar signing bonus. I said, give me the pen. I don't even want to argue with you. <laughs> That's, that was my introduction into free agency. <laughs> wow. 
And, and it's come <laughs> so far since then. But it, yeah, that's pretty cool. I want to talk to you about the yeah. Rolades relief. Did, did that come? It was, what was the first year of that Rolades award? It, you know, that's for the outstanding closer. Um, I know you won the award 77, 78 and 80 your time with right. the Padres, but did that just come in? Did that just start in the mid seventies? Uh, no. Yeah. It started in the early seventies. Uh, I can't remember. I'm, I want to say 72 or 73, somewhere in there, but, um, uh, I never really, um, got a chance to win that when I was, even though we were winning world championships in, in Oakland, 72, three and four, you know, I was averaging 22, 23, 20, maybe 24, um, uh, saves a year, but it was a, it was our whole bullpen was being used. Dick U. Williams used our bullpen to where I had maybe 22 saves. Uh, Daryl Knowles might have had 14 saves. Bob Locker might have had seven or eight. So it just, just wasn't one guy coming in. And most of the other ball clubs were just using one guy. So those guys were getting the opportunity to win that fireman of the year. I didn't win it. Uh, my first, the first time I won it was in 1977 when uh, I played with the uh, San Diego Padres. I never won it while I was in Oakland. All the good years I had in Oakland, I never won it because we always split the uh, split the, the games up between three or four relief pitchers in the bullpen in Oakland. And so those guys would get saves. If I was the only guy down there, yeah, but I wasn't. So Daryl Knowles was a great left-handed pitcher. And when uh, Dick Williams wanted to get a left-hander out, he might take me out of the game and bring in Knowles or you know, take Knowles out and bring – because we were going – we were back and forth all the time in the bullpen. But we never really got a whole bunch of saves. Like uh, guys on other teams would get 30, uh, you know, 32, 33 saves. I would only get 21, 22, 23. So I was always coming up short for that uh, that award. And then in 76, I was the only guy. Or 77, I was the only guy in the bullpen with a Padres. 77, 78, 79, and 80. I was the only guy. I was the closer there for four years. And I won, I think, three World, three uh, Rolades championship things in uh, in San Diego. Then I went to uh, to uh, San Milwaukee, and I got one. Or the Brewers, I won one in Milwaukee. I think. So, so after I after four eighty, of them, but, right? Go I'm ahead. Sorry? Go ahead. No, I said I won four. I won four of them, but uh, never won one in Oakland. Never, uh, even though that those were the greatest teams I played on never uh, never really won one in, in Oakland didn't get that opportunity so after the 80 season with the Padres uh, you get traded you get traded to the Cardinals then a couple days later they turn around <laughs> they trade you to the Brewers and which yeah. I don't know I, I would ask you but you know with with that year 81 probably your best year of your career you, you win the Cy Young yeah. you win the MVP and you win the Rolates. So, uh, and, and tell me about, this is, this is kind of, you know, a time for me. I was a little kid, and I, and I was watching, but I remember Harvey's Wallbangers, and I remember, you know, Molitor and Yount, Gorman Thomas, and Cecil Cooper. Tell me about those Brewers years. Oh, uh, well, those, those were great. I mean, uh, when I, I got traded to the Cardinals, uh, like you said, I was there for, for three days. Uh, uh, I, I told everybody in San Diego, I wanted to get out of San Diego. So they traded me to, to uh, St. Louis. And, um, I was happy. I was happy to be in St. Louis. In fact, the winter meetings were in St. Louis that year. And I went to St. Louis. I met with Whitey Herzog, had a nice talk with him, uh, uh, observed, uh, for two days, I think. And then, uh, I flew home and I get home and I pick up the newspaper the next day. And I've been, I've been traded to Milwaukee. I, I didn't even know it. That's how I found out about it. it was a new, during the newspapers. Uh, in fact, I, and, uh, Whitey had just traded for Bruce Suter at the same time. So Bruce and I were with the Cardinals at the same time. And and Whitey didn't know what to do. I think he didn't know whether to trade me or or trade <laughs> trade Bruce Suter somewhere. So uh, uh, Harry Dalton, the general manager for Milwaukee, made the deal with. St. Louis, uh, to bring Ted Simmons, Pete Vukovic, and myself to uh, uh, Milwaukee from St. Louis. And Mil- I think uh, St. Louis got six or seven players in the deal. And uh, But, yeah, I was and I was happy to go to Milwaukee because those guys, they had some masters. They could score some runs. 
Cecil Cooper, Ben Ogilvy, Gorman Thomas, he's winning home run championships, and Paul Molitor, and uh, Robin Yount, Jim Gantner, and, Mal, and uh, uh, Robin Yount were the best double play combination in baseball back then. Uh, but uh, And then we had Ted, Sim- Ted Simmons, our catcher now, and uh, we picked up Pete Vukovic, who ended up winning the Cy Young Award uh, the following year. So we had uh, we had a great ball club there. I mean, and in '81, that just everything everything fell together for me in '81. That was the strike year, uh, where we had like I think it was like 50 days somewhere in the middle of the season that we didn't play at all. So it was kind of a two split season. But uh, I mean, everything just uh, came together. I couldn't do anything wrong. I'd come in with the bases loaded and give up three line drives, and they'd be right at guys, you know. You just throw your glove out there and you get guys out. It was just one of those years. And I, I don't think I gave up. I think I gave up one earned run in Milwaukee all year. Uh, that's how crazy it was. I, you just don't do those things. Uh, and guys were making plays and we were scoring runs. You could, I could afford to make a mistake in Milwaukee. And, but with the offense that we had, we, we could score some runs. We could always come back. So, yeah, that was probably my best year uh, in the big leagues was that year in 1981. I remember. Well, I remember as a kid watching those Brewers teams. I love watching those Brewers teams. I love watching says Cecil Cooper because he reminded me of Rod Carew and uh, yeah. Paulie Molitor. Who, who I got, yeah, and Paul Molitor and and Robin. I got I got to play against them a little bit at the beginning of my career. Molly ended up being a, a hitting coach for me in Seattle years later. But but man, I have a lot yeah. of fond memories. You know, growing up yeah. watching Dad. Dad was in Philly and in Anaheim. But I, I was a baseball rat, so wherever I could watch a game, and I remember those Brewers teams. And and by by the way, I was going to say when, when when Whitey was wondering who am I going to trade, Fingers or Suter, he's figured ah, <laughs> Fingers already got <laughs> traded for three days to Boston. He'll he'll know how to handle it. <laughs> he just he just moved you to Milwaukee. I know it was it was crazy. It was, uh, was a crazy time. But I don't know what would have happened if he had kept both of us together on the same team. I mean. Both I'll tell you what, your, your I team would have been happy. Bullpen, but I don't, I don't know if that would have worked. I just don't think yeah, it would have worked back then. I, I think that team would have been happy. That offense would be happy having you both come <laughs> to that bullpen. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we'd have gotten enough work, though. I was, I'm, you know, I was used to throwing 100 and, 120, 130 innings a year coming out of the bullpen with both of us down there, and so was Suter. Suter was the same way. And uh, I don't think we'd have gotten the, the work. I needed a lot of work to stay sharp as a closer. Uh, you, I, I had to get into games. I had to throw a lot. And uh, to maybe sit down for a week and not pitch, I, I don't know if I could have done that or not. So after the 85 season, you end up retiring. But I want to hear, I, I, you, got a, I got a, you got a story for me about uh, an owner that I played for uh, in the middle of my career. That's Marge Shot. Tell me about, <laughs> Almost going to the Cincinnati Reds, but you had some prerequisites. What were they? <laughs> well, uh, GM, uh, oh, I'm trying to remember his name for Cincinnati back then. It was, this was in, uh, um, in 85. 86, uh, 85, yeah, after the end of the 85 season. Yeah, after uh, the end of the 85, uh, right. Yeah, so it's right around for first week in December, something like that, and phone rings, and it's, and he says, uh, I says, this is Raleigh? I says, yeah. I says, who's this? This is Pete. Pete? Pete who? This is Pete Rose. <laughs> he, said, he says, hey, I just, we just had a meeting with our staff here, and um, we'd like to see if you could come to uh, uh, spring training and be a member of the Cincinnati Reds next year because I had just, become, uh, I just gotten released by the Brewers. Didn't have a job anywhere. And I said, uh, yeah, you know, we had a nice little talk. I said, yeah, I'd be, be happy to. Um, so he said, I'll, I'll have our general manager call your call Burgess. I think it was Burgess, uh, call you up the next day. So the next day he calls and we started talking on the phone. He says, yeah, we, we had a meeting and Pete wants to like to have you in the spring training. And, uh, just, uh, there's just one thing. He says, what's that? I said, he says, well, you'd have to shave your mustache. I said, what? He says, yeah, you have to shave your mustache. He says, we haven't have any, we have no, uh, no facial hair policy here with the reds. And uh, Marge Schatz just has no facial hair. And so you have to shave your mustache to come to spring training. And I said, wow. So I said, well, let me think about this, okay? And I, I told him, I'll call you back tomorrow. 
So um, I, I talked to my wife, and I said, she said, you know, hey, it's up to you, you know, whatever you want to do. So I, I called, uh, I called him back up the next day, and I said, you know what, I think I'm just going to go ahead and keep my my mustache. If you if you want me, if you want me there, you tell Mark Schatz to save her Saint Bernard, and I'll save my mustache. And uh, I hung up. <laughs> that was it. And that was never it. heard back from never heard back from Pete or them again. I said that's it. Uh, you you, shot, you had to tell Mars to shave her St. Bernard, and I'll shave my mustache. And uh, she didn't shave her St. Bernard, so I didn't hear back from him. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and, and I hear these Charlie <laughs> Finley stories and, and uh, you know, how different your experience was in Oakland. Well, I played in Cincinnati for Marge Shot, so I have a, a little bit of an understanding what it's like when, you, when you've got an eccentric owner. And, man, I, I remember just batting practice and, uh, you know, when I was a kid and, you know, I had been to arbitration yet. I remember Marge coming down and and her first St. Bernard died, Shotzi. But she kept, Shotzi, she shaved yeah, the dog. Yeah, she shaved the dog and she had all the dog hair and she put it into little like sandwich packets. And I mean, she had thousands <laughs> of them. And she'd come down before the game. You know, I'd be sitting around the cage waiting to take my round. And I'd feel somebody's hand go into my back pocket of my uniform. And Marge would, I'd turn around, up, there's Marge. She's like, Booty, I need you to have a big game today. And I said, what, what, what do you got for me, Marge? She says, well, I got some Shotzi hair from my dead dog. And it's in your back pocket for good luck. And I said, all right, Marge, you know, we got, uh, I got that multi-year deal coming up. Uh, all right, if you need me to, if you need me to, that's right. If you need me to wear this, rock this hair for the game, I will. But no, I understand. But that's, that, that sounds like her. And, that, and your retort was, was perfect. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, that was something. But that's when I retired. And I wasn't going to shave my mustache. She had more facial hair than I did, so I wasn't about to shave her. Shave my mustache, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> All right, so let's go to uh, 1992. Uh, pretty cool year for you. Uh, you, go, you got the Brewers Walk of Fame. Uh, number retired as a Milwaukee Brewer, which I always, you know, when I have guys on the show, uh, it's one thing to be in the in the Brewers Hall of Fame, but but it's it's another thing to get your number retired. I mean, nobody's ever going to wear that number, and I always think that's a really cool thing. But you also got the call for the ultimate, and that's the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, I've asked a lot of guys about it, you know, and as much as everybody tells you, hey, Raleigh, oh, you're definitely getting in, and until you get that call. Uh, what goes through your mind, and, and when you got that call, how how great of a day was it for you? Oh, it was it was a fun day. Uh, I was um, uh, well the first the first in 1991. I was on the ballot, and uh, everybody's saying, you know, you got a shot at the Hall of Fame. And I said, well, I couldn't. There's nothing I couldn't gauge myself on anybody because there was no other relief pitchers in the Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, especially closers other than Hoyt Wilhelm. But you threw the knuckleball and. Uh, uh, he did a lot of starting too, so he, he really wasn't a full-time closer. So I was the first guy to be on the ballot that was a full-time closer, and I, I didn't know whether or not I was going to get it or not. You never know what the sports writers are going to are going to do. So um, the the about the voting came in in '91, in and I didn't make it. I missed it by about 30 votes. So uh, the next year, '92, uh, I'm, I'm on the ballot again. Uh, and uh, Tom Seaver's on the ballot. And uh, I decided I had a restaurant called Trophies down in San Diego, and uh, I was a part owner of it, you know, some small percentage owner. So I had, I blocked off a, an area of the uh, restaurant and had a little party with all my friends just in case I did get the call. And uh, we were down there, and uh, about, I think it was like uh, they said, if you, they call you, it's going to be sometime right around between 6 and 6.15, so you know, I, I let everybody, I let everybody at the hall or in baseball know where I was going to be at that night with what the phone, what the phone number was. So they called, and uh, they, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name, Stack. I don't know who calls. Golly, I can't even remember the guy's name now. But anyway, he called and said, um, uh, "You've just been voted in to the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame," and I said, "Wow." And everybody was quiet, and I gave a thumbs up while I was on the phone. Everybody started cheering. So uh, that was a fun night. And uh, I had to be in New York the next day for the, for a press conference. So I had to go right straight from my party to the airport and fly on a red eye to New York. So uh, that was a fun time. Uh, you get that call, that's, 
that's big time right there when you get that phone call. The ultimate. 93, uh, inducted into the Ace Hall of Fame. Number retired as well. Number, another really cool uh, accolade. You're racking them up, Raleigh. And uh, <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool two years. That's a lot of Hall of Fame. Um, oh, yeah. when, you look at, when you look at bullpens today, what's your first thought? I know La Russa kind of changed it even further. I mean, you started it. La Russa kind of kind of furthered, you know, that, that closer role when, when he had Eckersley in, uh, in Oakland. Right. But what's your first thought today when you look at the bullpens? Uh, well, you, you, what I, the difference that I see is well, there's more guys down there. Uh, there's more guys that are throwing 95-plus. I mean, you didn't see that many 95-plus guys in the big leagues in, in the bullpen when uh, when I was playing. Uh, Goose and uh, Terry Forster with Chicago, they threw really hard. But, well, you know, Quisenberry was an underhand guy. Kent DeColvey was an underhand guy. Didn't throw exceptionally hard. Uh, Sparky Lau didn't throw exceptionally hard. Uh, Bruce Suter had the split finger. So a lot of guys, you know, a little more tricky pitches uh, stuff. And uh, nowadays it's uh, all velocity. I mean, you got a, if you're a closer, you, you're throwing the ball 95, 96, 97, 100 miles an hour. And that's the biggest difference I see. And, uh, they're, and they only go one inning. Uh, they won't bring these guys in and let them pitch two or three innings. That's, that's the other big thing that I notice. Uh, I mean, there, there's guys that are set-up guys on some teams that could be closers on other teams, but they've got, uh, you know, they got the number one guy in front of them, and they're not going to get by that number one guy unless they get traded. That's just the way it is. But nowadays it's more seeing how hard you can throw the ball instead of pitching. Uh, you know, uh, I was throwing the ball 92, 93 miles an hour, I think, in my best years. Uh, but I threw a slider, uh, just threw different speeds, you know, different, did different things with my fastball, cutting it, sinking it, uh, running it. And then I started throwing a forkball as a changeup. And, uh, when I developed that, that pitch, uh, that was, you know, that, that made me a much better pitcher. I, I learned how, how to pitch when I first started throwing that. And that was my first year in San Diego. And I became a better pitcher when I, I never threw a changeup. For the first nine years in the big leagues, I never threw a changeup. Everything I threw was hard, hard slider, hard fastball. Everything was hard. When I came into the situations, I didn't want to give anybody any time to look at pitches. I wanted everything hard. And when I developed that forkball, I changed my career uh, immediately. I just became a better pitcher. And nowadays, you don't see that when, from closers. You, know, you don't see that slide or slow curveball uh, change up. You don't see a lot of that. It's mostly all hard stuff. And that's the biggest change I see in the bullpens nowadays. And that, that split's kind of fallen out of favor in recent times. But, but I know exactly what you're talking about. The end of my or the middle of my career, uh, Clemens went to that split. And, and I never mm-hmm. had a problem with Roger. I saw the ball real well. Everything was hard. All of a sudden, he came up with that split. It was almost like it was an equalizer. Same thing for Kurt <laughs> Schilling. When, when I first got to the big right. leagues, yeah, mm-hmm. Schilling was a good pitcher, but it, he didn't bother me. I picked up his slider. Great. Everything was hard, four-seam fast. He came up with that split. Different animal. Because for, for, those out there, for those of you out there listening to Boom Podcast, that split finger – it gives the appearance that it's a fastball out of your hand, but it drops about a foot and a half. And, and that's yep. the whole thing. It's a, it's a swing and miss pitch. And if you've got a good one, man, uh, it is tough. Yeah. But, but right now we're kind of going through a lull. Not that many people throwing the split. I have a feeling it's going to start making its way back. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting you say that. Split is, is a difference maker. And, and I saw a lot of guys personally that, that upped their game as soon as they acquired that split. I want to do a little yeah. rapid fire with you. I'm going to give you six guys and just what comes to mind when I mention them. First one, we're going to go with Mariano Rivera. Uh, probably the best, <laughs> without a doubt. I mean, he, and he only threw one pitch, really. He threw a little cut fastball. But he could hit – and that in the hind end, I mean, wherever the catcher put the glove up, he could hit it. He had amazing control, and that's what got him by. I mean, he, I watched him pitch, I think, one of the all-star games 
you threw an inning in the All-Star game, he threw 10 pitches, and the catcher could have caught him blindfolded. Wherever he put the glove, he hit the glove. And uh, he's probably one of the best control pitchers coming out of the bullpen I've seen in a long, long time. Dennis Eckersley. Uh, he went from starter to, to reliever. He had two careers, and he uh, he did uh, both of them very well. But I think when he went in the bullpen, in the bullpen he got better. Uh, he became that one-inning pitcher. He could go out there and just throw as hard as he could, and he had a nasty sinker, a nasty slider. Uh, great relief pitcher, and he could he had the type of arm which you don't see a whole lot of guys that could go out and throw one inning every day, and uh, he had that type of an arm. Great relief. That's why he's in the hall. That's why both of them are in the hall. <laughs> Bruce Suter, uh, nastiest forkball. He only had one pitch too. Nasty forkball. Uh, we could throw a fastball, but you never knew whether it was going to go straight or not. Uh, nastiest forkball I've ever seen. I'd, you know, you sit there and watch him pitch, uh, and the guys he would make people look stupid uh, at the plate when swinging. Um, but another guy that could go out and throw every day, throw two or three innings, uh, four innings, uh, and uh, he was that's why he's in the hall. He uh, he had a great career. The the Cincinnati Reds bullpen of the 90s, the nasty boys, Myers, Charlton, and Dibble. <laughs> uh, all three of those guys, they were nasty. Uh, they threw hard. Um, uh, they had pretty good control, and uh, they spread the work out. They spread it around. So uh, one of them pitched one day. They could, you had When you're three deep in the bullpen like that, uh, man, that's a manager's dream. Uh, when you got three guys that come, come out of the bullpen throwing as hard as they did and uh, and, do, and still doing the job. So uh, the, uh, I think that was uh, when Pete Rose was there managing, I think. But, yeah, uh, it was. Uh, they, they, were, they were the nasty boys for sure. Trevor Hoffman. Uh, uh, Trevor Hoffman, unbelievable changeup. Uh, great control. Uh, they could look for the changeup, and he could throw it slower. Uh, <laughs> he was a, a, a great competitor, another guy with a great arm who could go out there and throw every day. Uh, what do you have, 600-some saves? Uh, you don't do that and not be able to go out and throw every, every day. So uh, uh, he's another reason why I'm, uh, he's, he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he's a great, great relief pitcher. You, you want him on your club for sure. The last one, 2021, we'll give you, we'll give you a modern-day guy. Raldis Chapman, the Yankees. <laughs> pure, pure gas. <laughs> He's scary. <laughs> He's scary. Uh, when, he first, uh, when he first came up, uh, you know, was, everything was hard. And he started throwing that breaking ball. And uh, he started throwing that slider and getting it over. And um, when you throw 101, 102 miles an hour, and then you can throw a 92-mile-an-hour slider, yeah, uh, you're gonna get some get knees buckling, and uh, I think he's coming. I think he's coming into his own as a relief pitcher. He's, when, when he started throwing a little more of those breaking balls up there, because they're not gonna hit it. If they're looking fastball, they're not gonna get around on it. And the uh, slider, the slider he's got, is good enough to get by too. So uh, he's gonna be a, he's gonna be a good one. I think he's gonna be around a while. Raleigh Fingers, I just want to tell you it's a pleasure. I appreciate you coming on the Boone Podcast. Awesome career, Hall of Famer. And what we do each and every Boone podcast is we bring in the voice of the podcast for some questions from the fans. That would be Dan Levy. Dano. Gentlemen, Mr. <laughs> Fingers, how are you? Hello, Dan. All right. So this one, Raleigh, comes from Frank in Milwaukee, and he wanted to know, how would you have liked to have had a setup man in front of you during your career? Setup man? Yeah. Oh, golly. I would have I would have rather gone out and pitched from the sixth inning on. I don't think I would have liked the setup man. Uh, I was the kind of a pitcher who needed a lot of work to stay sharp and uh, – uh, to, sh- to, stay so- to stay sharp, I'd have to be on the mound at least, uh, you know, two out of every four days. And so I don't know if a setup man would have been great for me coming in. I don't think I could do the one-inning deal. I had, to, I had to be out there for a few innings. Gotcha. And last question, who are some of your favorite teammates, Oakland, San Diego, Milwaukee, anybody in particular that you uh, really enjoyed oh, being with? Oh, I loved, uh, you know, in Oakland for nine years. Uh, Catfish Hunter was a real good friend. Kenny Holtzman, uh, uh, one of our starters, he was my roommate. 
Uh, we got along great. Um, in in San Diego, uh, Ozzy Smith was my he was my shortstop one year, and you could just tell from watching him play. Uh, there was nothing he could, he could play shortstop and third base at the same time, and, uh, and he was a good friend of mine. Uh, when I got to Milwaukee, uh, Ted Simmons, um, Paul Mahler, Robin Young, I got to be friends. You know, when you play with a team for five, six, seven years in a row, you, you all become friends. But uh, Paul Mahler and uh, uh, Ted Simmons, probably my, my two best friends. Raleigh Fingers, thanks for coming on the Brett Boom Podcast. We really enjoyed it. All right, thanks. It's a pleasure being on. Mailbag. Brett, you know that sound. Uh, mailbag time, Dad. Nobody's excited as I am, but it is mailbag time! <laughs> yes! Yes! Bring it home, baby. They're all applauding the, the mailbag. All right, Brett. This one comes from Reggie in San Antonio. Brett, did you ever take the mound as a kid or in high school? Were you ever a pitcher? Uh, pitcher in Little League. Uh, broke my arm. I was 12 years old. We are in that, that Little League World Series tournament. Back east, New Jersey, uh, arm snapped in half, throwing breaking balls before puberty. <laughs> so that was my 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 last time pitching. Yikes! That sounds terrible. Yes. All right. Let's hopefully this next question. Uh, cheers it up, man, Brett. Okay, this one comes from Jenny in Kansas City, and she wants to know this, Brett. How cool was the All Star Game locker room hanging out with all those guys? Oh, that was one of my one of the highlights of my career. I remember the first All Star game I, I made was the '98 All Star game, and getting the call. And it's just another thing, you know. You as a kid, you dream about being a baseball player, then you dream about being a big league player, and you get to the big leagues, and, and you dream about being an All Star. When I finally got that call, I remember that first All Star game. I just was I was there early, sitting in my locker, just looking around. And thinking, wow, I made it. I made it. This is so cool. So it, it was uh, surreal for me, that first one especially. They're all great, and it's an honor to get picked any year that you do get picked. But that first one was in, in Colorado was just really special because it was, like I said, it was a dream come true. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this year, Brent Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera digital content is Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Brett Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, my name is Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a good one.